0: Alright, please, brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 11 and verses 14 to 19. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 14 to 19. Revelation chapter 11 verses 14 to 19. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's holy word. The second woe has passed. Behold, the the third woe is to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Thus far is the reading of God's word. Well, brothers and sisters, chapter 11 has been a, a beautiful portrayal of the whole history of the kingdom which concludes with a grand vision of its complete and total victory when Christ returns in glory at His second advent. Last week led us up to the very brink of the end of the age we said. And as verse 14 today describes for us, up to this point now in our text, two woes have passed and only one woe remains. And that second woe we concluded with last week in verse 13 was a a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Both those numbers express limitation in that judgment, doesn't it? That it wasn't a, a full and complete judgment, but a partial judgment which coincides, the great earthquake that we read about in verse 13, right, coincides with the great earthquake under the sixth seal that we read about earlier in chapter 6, which was likewise, not a complete judgment, but a partial judgment. The beginnings of the final judgment, just prior to the seventh seal being opened, which depicted for us the end of the age and the complete and total judgment of the world in Righteousness. But what we also see at the conclusion of our text from last week in verse 13 is also a reversal taking place with what some of these figures in verse 13 uh, represent. And this is what I mean by this. One tenth as well as seven thousand are both numbers found in the Old Testament. But those numbers in the Old Testament are oftentimes associated with God's protection or God's keeping a, a remnant or a, or, a, or a group as He is dishing out covenant curses upon rebellious Israel. I'll give you two examples of this. In Amos chapter five verse three, we read this: "For thus says the Lord God, the city when out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left." To the house of Israel. Right? We have a tenth there. In First Kings chapter 19, verse 18, the Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed Him. Right? But here we see the numbers flip now, don't we? Right? Instead of this being a faithful remnant protected by God, these people, that 7,000 and that one-tenth are the first to fall as God begins to dish out that final end time judgment on a portion of humanity. And the rest who remain, we are told, were what? They were terrified and they began to glorify God. Now, we might be tempted initially to to believe that this is to be interpreted in a positive manner. uh, So that as they behold this 7,000 in this one-tenth falling and being killed, that now those who were once antagonistic to God have now come to faith in Christ. Right? Upon seeing it towards the end of the age God's great works of sovereignty over all of the earth, and now upon resisting Christ for so long, they, they now come to saving faith in Christ. This... This could be a part of what takes place. right? As, as people see God's workings in history, they hear the Gospel proclaimed, they, they come to saving faith in Christ. But I think that it is more likely here that what is being described, this glory that is given by those who are terrified upon seeing what has just taken place, is only uh, an acknowledgement of God's heavenly sovereignty. It's just a, a recognition Right? They, are, they are forced to recognize that God is sovereign over all things, and so that it is not a, a trusting and a resting in Christ that is being spoken about at the end of verse 13, but rather a simple recognition while they remain in a state of unbelief, much like the prophet, uh, excuse me, much like King Nebuchadnezzar, which we read about in the book of Daniel. If you remember in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, what happens? Right? The Lord allows Daniel to interpret the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as he does this, what does King Nebuchadnezzar do in response? He falls down and he pays homage to David. And what does he say in verse 47 of chapter 2? Truly, your God is God of God and Lord of Kings. Right? He He gives glory to God, doesn't he? In chapter 3 though, what happens? He tries to get the saints to worship an idol. He turns right around and does that. And so what we see for Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh was just one of many gods who was added to his list of gods. And so like many here, after the 7,000 are killed and the one-tenth fell, give glory to God insofar as they are forced to acknowledge Him. His absolute sovereignty over all things and yet remain in a state of unbelief. And all of this then leads us to our, our third and our final woe. And our first point of the morning, which is this. Kingdom come. Kingdom come. Let us see, brothers and sisters, there's, there are no more woes to be had. This is the third and the final woe, just as we have reached the seventh and the final trumpet. There is no more trumpets to be blown. Which tells us what? This is the all-conclusive and all-decisive final judgment that is depicted for us in our text today. Seven is what? What have we we've been saying throughout our study in the book of Revelation? Seven, the number of completion. So that this judgment completes or it perfects God's judgment of the ungodly in this world. And the finality of the seventh trumpet has already been revealed to us earlier, hasn't it? Remember Revelation chapter 10 and verses 5 to 7. Look with me there, please. Revelation chapter 10 verses 5 to 7. because We've already heard about what is going to happen at the seventh trumpet. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as He announced to His servants and to the prophets. And so just as we read then in our text today, that as the seventh trumpet is blown, the final trumpet, there is no more delaying the inevitable. Right, The final judgment with the, which this picture in our text depicts for us has come. And that triumph that we anticipate along with all of those who have come before us, and all of us who will come after us, that are waiting upon the arrival of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, likewise have that depicted in this vision as something that is already accomplished. right? see that. In our text today, the return that we long anticipate, where God will both judge the world and reward His faithful, is already in our text depicted for us as being accomplished. That's incredible if you think about it. But that's how God oftentimes reveals Himself to us. And depicts things for us and conveys things for us so that we can know that, that what He has said is certain and true and will surely come to pass. It will happen. We see this oftentimes in Scripture. We can think of Romans chapter 8, verse 30 as just one example of this. In Romans 8, verse 30, Paul says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He also called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. He glorified. It's a past action. He glorified. And yet, brothers and sisters, are we glorified yet? No. We we await our glorification. And yet, it can be spoken of as if it has already been accomplished and already happened. Why? Because God is a God who promises and who keeps His promises. And so we can be certain and sure that all that He has said shall come to pass. And this is too why He can... Constantly throughout all of Scripture reveal to us future events. Because what God says will happen. No one will thwart the plan of God. You can't throw a hiccup in God's plan. Any sort of wrinkle in God's plan. And so just as He said back in Revelation 10, verses 5-7, to when the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet of the seventh angel sounds, there is no more delay. The end is here. This is the same trumpet that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In particular, in verses 51 and 52, where Paul says this, Behold, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Listen to that last verse one more time for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Look at verse 18 real quick. After the trumpet sounds, the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints. It is at this time, brothers and sisters, that death is defeated. That the general resurrection occurs where they are sent to to glory or eternal damnation. It is the same moment we are reading about in our text today that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 and 25, where we read this, Then comes the end, when He, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He puts all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See this here, brothers and sisters. After the mediatorial reign of Christ is over, He delivers the kingdom back up to His Father. Christ was given this kingdom Right, to look over the people of God, to, to save them, to redeem them, to protect them, to preserve them until the end. And when he accomplishes that, he, he gives or delivers up the kingdom back to his father, having completed his task, and he presents to the father those who are now perfect in his sight, who are holy, who are perfectly righteous and just and good with Perfect holiness without spot, stain, or wrinkle before God the Almighty. This is why then the voices in heaven can say this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Now this needs to be read in conjunction with what I just stated in 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-four, and 25. We need to understand that when Christ delivers the kingdom over to the Father which is depicted for us in our text today, Christ does not stop reigning as King. His reign as King never ceases. Just as the Father's reign as King never ceased, even though the kingdom has been under the care of His Son. And so when the kingdom comes, the long-awaited messianic kingdom of the Old Testament comes then Christ's reign was going to be a visible reign for every eye to see. And yet, at that time, when Christ comes to reign, He is going to be reigning in a different manner than He reigns today. Today, as Christ reigns, He reigns in the midst of His enemies. When kingdom comes, Christ will reign amongst the saints. Right now, Christ as King reigns through His Spirit and through His Word and through His ordinances. But when Kingdom come, Christ will reign in His Person displaying His glory amongst the saints without any need of means or ministers or signs or symbols or ordinances. Right? In addition, we see this take place. Right now, Although Christ reigns, His kingship is disputed. Right, His kingship is disputed amongst the creatures of this world. There is rebellion against His kingship today. There is betrayal and there is open treachery against His kingship. There is even a denial of the kingship of Christ today amongst those who live in this world. His enemies today wage war against His kingship. Against the Lord and against the Lord's servants. But when kingdom comes, all of that will be put away. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, recognizing His universal kingship over all things, as well as His absolute sovereignty over all that is visible and invisible. But also see this, brothers and sisters, in our text this morning. That the kingdom of the world is the kingdom that is defeated here. The kingdom of the world. In verse 15, the kingdom of the world, the cosmos, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Which tells us what? That there are ultimately only two kingdoms in this world. Look at. Psalm 5, or excuse me, just listen as I read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. There you have the plural. Nations, peoples, kings, rulers. But what we need to see is that all who stand apart from Jesus Christ and oppose to His kingdom Belong to the ungodly kingdom of this world, right? the kingdom of this world, whom the prince of demons leads, and so that we see there are two kingdoms, right one true, one light, one leading to eternal life, and there is a second kingdom that is false, that is darkness, and that leads to eternal death, even the kingdom of our Lord right now has people who try to attach themselves to it, who do not belong to it even externally and outwardly, don't they? Right Today as we live, there are people who come to church every Sunday and who pray and who read their Bibles and maybe who are even in ministry who are hypocrites and false. But do we see that when the Kingdom comes, all of that will be put away? There will be no more pretenders in the kingdom of God. There will be no more wolves amongst the sheep. For when Christ returns, all who reside with Him in that kingdom will be pure of heart. And so the question then, brothers and sisters, is this. To which kingdom do you belong today? Right? To which kingdom do you belong? Because we know for certain the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness and in judgment Right, when the seventh trumpet is blown, there will be no more delay. There will be no more opportunity for someone to repent. Right, judgment comes and the universal and everlasting reign of Christ and His body on a renovated earth will begin. Brothers and sisters, we come into this world fallen. We come into this world under the sway of the devil living in His kingdom, in the kingdom of this world, but His kingdom is death. Right For a time when Adam fell, Satan became the God of this world. He became the God of this world and God permitted this to be so that He might punish wicked man for their sin. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we need to see is that God had a plan. He had a plan. And that was not to leave this world into the hands of the devil but rather to deliver the world from the devil. right? To finally, and once and for all, crush the head of the serpent. To destroy his evil and wicked kingdom once and for all. And to restore mankind to fellowship with God for all of eternity as He had purposed from the foundation of the world. And so the question is, what side are you on? Or whose side are you on? Christ or the devil's? Right? Christ though is already one. The devil has already been defeated. If you want to win, if you want to be victors, then it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. For all others, you are losers and defeated with Satan. And you have no excuse, for God has revealed His plan. He has revealed His plan to us. He has told us time and time again how things will end. He has provided warning after warning, opportunity after opportunity, he has also provided what? A message of rescue through the atoning work of Christ. And so mankind has no excuse. But it's no wonder then why we read that these 24 elders fall upon their faces and worship the Lord. The 24 which represent the elect from both the Old and the New Testament. And they worship God in thanksgiving and praise. And after a hard-fought battle, the victors do What? They celebrate, don't they? Right? They celebrate. Think about even in sport. Right now I'm enjoying the, watching the World Cup. I love the World Cup. But as the games end, after a hard-fought battle, what you'll see happen is all the players and coaches who are on the bench, they rush onto the field when the final whistle is blown and they celebrate amongst one another and with their fans. Right? After a hard-fought battle, Celebration ensues. Right? We see that same thing in war. Right? A nation defeats a nation, they come home, and that victorious nation celebrates their victory. Well, brothers and sisters, right now we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Right? Daily, whether you know it or not, you are doing battle. Right? Your, your soul is being assailed every day of your lives. Every day, war is being waged over it. You are wrestling against principalities and against powers. Every day, we are having to exert energy in discerning and fleeing from the schemes of the devil. But when kingdom comes, all of that will be done. Right? The the war will be over. The struggling shall cease. And celebration over the arrival of ultimate triumph will ensue amongst the saints. And this leads us then to our second point this morning, which then is kingdom celebrated. Kingdom celebrated. Please look with me, starting at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Look with me. Again, the first line of verse 27. What is it? Verse 17, excuse me. What is it that the 24 elders say? We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. A few observations I want us to see from this first line in verse 17. First, then, is this, how the text parallels what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the consummation of the kingdom, what happens in 1 Corinthians 15? Jesus delivers up the kingdom to His Father. And then it's God's rule that is emphasized as Jesus Christ has completed His mediatorial reign. What do we see again at the beginning of verse 17? We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty. Where does the emphasis of the thanksgiving lie in our text this morning? To God. Why is that? Because the kingdom has been delivered up to God by Jesus Christ as His mediatorial kingship has ended. He now delivers it up to His Father. Additionally, let us see this, that that prior to the consummation of the kingdom, God is addressed with a threefold title. (coughs) Excuse me. But now we see the end of the age and the everlasting and eternal kingdom established by our Lord and a renovated earth. And in our text in verse 17, there is now a variation to the divine title that was ascribed to God earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, we read this, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Right Now, we are at the consummation of the kingdom. And what happens? For you have taken your great power and begun to reign, has replaced who is to come. Do you see that? Why do you think that is? Because eternity is no longer to come. But it is. When Christ comes, eternity is no longer to come. We're not looking towards the future. Eternity is. It simply is. Christ returns, delivers up the kingdom to His Father as the seventh trumpet is blown, and it ushers in the eternal state. This is one reason, though, brothers and sisters, why there cannot be a a temporary earthly millennial kingdom reign because as we see in our text, that seventh trumpet heralds the end of history. It heralds the end of the age. It heralds that now we are in eternal glory. Right now, just as the saints in the first century did, we look to the future. But when Christ comes, He will bring eternal peace, everlasting blessedness, or He will bring judgment. But when He comes, when the eternal state comes, future is no more. Future is no more. Then in verse 18, we see that the universal judgment of the world is what is described here. The universal judgment of the world. The nations raged. Again, Psalm 2. Right? Isn't this what the world has been doing in response to the first advent of Christ? Right? Was it not the many of the Jews and the Pharisees who were incited against Christ and His message and sought and plotted to have Him killed and who were shouting out, crucify Him, crucify Him? Was it not in the early centuries of the church the romans right who who raged against the christian church seeking to put faithful believers to death right today do not the nations rage against our lord and against those who serve the lord yes they do they despise him they despise his message they despise his church right the, the world wants to eradicate true christianity for good but they will fail they will fail. And there will be a universal defeat of all of our Lord's foes at that time. And then what we will see is a general resurrection of both the just and the unjust at the same time, which Daniel himself speaks about in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, "...and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt." Which is the very same thing that our Lord Jesus Christ says will happen when? At His second advent. In Matthew 25, what does He say? When He returns, they will gather the sheep and the goats. They will separate them. And at that time, He will say to the goats, away from Me into everlasting punishment, and to the sheep, away into everlasting life. And so we see there will be a judgment and a reward in verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints. Exactly what Daniel 12.2 speaks about. Exactly what Matthew 25 in our Lord describes as well. Right? By the grace of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ at this time will be rewarded with eternal life. Right? Those who have rejected Christ will be castigated, sent off to the lake of fire and the place that has been prepared for Satan and his allies from before the foundation of the world that they might be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the reward we see is for what? It's for the, the great and the small. The whole range of the Christian body for everyone who is a believer. Whether you are seen as someone puny and small in the kingdom or someone great in the kingdom. This reward is for All of God's people. And so all of these things we've just described are reasons for the church to celebrate. To express such jubilation. Celebration over the, the end of Satan's dominion. right? Celebration over the universal reign of Christ on earth with His people. Celebration over how God has defeated the kingdom of this world. Celebration over our reward of eternal life. And glory with God and all of the accompanying blessings that come with it. But the emphasis in verse 18 is even more so on judgment than it is on redemption. As it begins and ends with judgment. Right? The nations are judged. Why? For their sinful outrage. Right? For their sinful outrage. And what is the nature of that judgment? Well, look at the conclusion of verse 18. It concludes with God destroying the church's earthly oppressors because they have sought to destroy God's people. Do we see, brothers and sisters, how the, the penalty fits the crime? How those who have spent their, their lives seeking to destroy God's people are now the ones at the end of the age who will be destroyed. But let us see then the, the urgency of coming to faith in Jesus Christ now, today, right for for judgment for the for judgment is is right around the corner it is, on, it is on the horizon right right now god speaks to the world through his word right he he shows forth christ to the eyes and the ears of people all over the globe but brothers and sisters there's coming a time when christ will no longer speak that word to people but rather he will speak wrath to them or right? he will speak wrath to those who have rejected Jesus Christ the Lord and have seen no need for His atoning sacrifice. And when the wrath comes, His wrath will come in full upon them. They will be made to drink the cup of wrath. And what they will discover is that cup of wrath never runs out. It never goes dry. It is an infinite cup of wrath that they will drink because it is an infinite penalty and an infinite punishment that is the only thing one is worthy of for sinning against an infinite Lord and an infinite God. But this is why it's so important then to look to the promises of Scripture. Right? What does our Word say? What does Paul say? Right? Whoever believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, whoever confesses that God has raised Him from the dead, will be saved. Right? What does John say? To believe in the only begotten Son. So that whoever whoever believes in, Him, whoever receives the, the merits and works of Christ, will never perish, but have everlasting life. What does John say in his epistle? That if we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This, brothers and sisters, is why there will be this jubilation in heaven. Because the saints recognize that they were pulled from the depths of despair. By the mercy of God. That the only reason that they get to enjoy the eternal state in the presence of the Lord forever is because of His mercy. Right? They enjoy those blessings because of His mercy. And this leads us to our, our third and our final point this morning, which then is kingdom enjoyed. Kingdom enjoyed. Look with me please at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. We've seen this cosmic phenomenon before, haven't we? We see this after the opening of the seventh seal. And now we see it as the seventh trumpet is blown. And these types of cosmic occurrences in the Old Testament were associated with theophanies. And that is no different here in our text today. The the combination of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and hail signify that God has come. That God has come and He has come to judge the world and to usher the saints into glory. In fact, what we see in our text today is a kind of typological fulfillment of the Exodus wilderness Jericho motif. If you remember earlier, as we started to look at the trumpets in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we highlighted the fact that it is it is patterned after Joshua 6, in the, in the bringing down of the walls of Jericho. You have the, the six trumpets that are blown. And on the seventh trumpet, the walls of Jericho fall, and the people of God are led into the promised land. The same thing that we see in our text as well. After six trumpets are blown, the seventh trumpet is blown. And what happens? The the walls of this kingdom come crashing down and we are led into the heavenly promised land that has been appointed for us to be in the presence of our Lord forever. And that's what's depicted as we read that the temple in heaven opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in the temple. Right, that's the message that is being conveyed in that, in that picture of that vision. Because remember in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, John already told us that he saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And so this temple that, that John now sees in heaven that's opening up, and the Ark of the Covenant that he sees in it is not to be interpreted, as a literal temple or a little ark. And I think we see this further as we identify the significance of the ark of the covenant that was seen by John in the temple. On the Day of Atonement, uh, once a year, the sacrificial blood of the animal was, was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant. And what did that symbolize? Uh, a covering of the nation's sins. Right? That is what sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant symbolized. Which did what? It ensured God's presence with His people. That's what it did. It ensured God's presence with His people. Right? This is something that the high priest saw once a year. The people couldn't see it because of God's holiness and their sinfulness. But well, what we have here then in the symbol of the heavenly temple being opened in the Ark of the Covenant... Being seen by John is a, is now a reappearance of God, right, with His people at the end of time. Right, that is what is being symbolized here. For the chasm that once existed because of sin, even now today between God and the redeemed, will be removed at the end of the age. Right, right now Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly Right now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, we shall see the Lord face to face. Right? Brothers and sisters, that is what is being described and depicted for us here in our text today. At this time, we will see Christ as He is. We will see Christ as He is. And Christ is the only reason for it. Right? It is because of Christ's work. It is because of Christ's merits which is what the Ark of the Covenant being opened then symbolizes for us. Ask yourself, what was contained within the Ark of the Covenant? Two tablets or the Ten Commandments. And so what does the opening of the Ark symbolize for us? That the law of God has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ with all of its demands. So that the law no more stands against God's people. Right, That we who have been now perfected will be with the Lord in the radiance of His immediate presence forever when Christ comes to tabernacle with His people for good. Once and for all. Right now, brothers and sisters, we need to understand we enjoy the Kingdom in part. We only enjoy the Kingdom in part. With the first coming of Christ, the eschaton has poured in in part. Right? We receive blessings and benefits of the end of the age right now. But there is so much more for you and I to enjoy. The greatest enjoyment being the beatific vision. The greatest blessing is the beatific vision to see God as He is. To stand face to face with God. The greatest blessing any of us could enjoy to see God. And so I ask, do you find yourselves, brothers and sisters, praying as Jesus taught the apostles to pray? Your kingdom come. Do you pray? Your kingdom come. If not, why not? If not, why not? Is it because there are things maybe more interesting or more important or more valuable to you in this life now than to see God face to face. Do you not pray your kingdom come because you do not long for a world in which sin is eradicated, but rather you enjoy the life you have now, which is a life with the Lord yet sprinkled with sin, Brothers and sisters, if the seventh trumpet sounded today, would you be ready? Would you be ready? As believers, we should be. We ought to long for the return of our Lord. We ought to hunger and thirst for it. There should be nothing on this world right now that we love or desire so much that we would want to prolong the coming of Christ. There should be nothing that we want to hear so badly and so deeply than those words that Jesus told the apostles that he would say when he returns to the sheep. In Matthew 25 verse 34, where he says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is why Paul could say to live as Christ, but to die is gain. Right? To die is gain. There is nothing more filling. There is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing more exciting than seeing the Lord and being in His immediate presence forever. Where sin is gone. right? Where pain is gone. Where there is no more wrestling with, with temptation. Where every tear will be wiped away. Right? How can you not long to hear the, the seventh trumpet to be blown. Right? How can you not long for that sound? For when it does, brothers and sisters, that seventh trumpet blast will be a declaration to the entire world that Christ, who died to redeem His people, has returned as He has promised. And He has returned to establish His everlasting kingdom forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word as it is so comforting to the hearts of the saints. It consoles weary hearts, those fatigued by this world and fatigued by doing battle with with sin and temptation every day of our lives. We ask, Lord, that You would continue to increase our faith every day as we read and learn more about Your Word and Your promises. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to be those who pray, Thy kingdom come, desiring to see the Lord face to face. So, Father, we come before You this morning asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.